Chapters 36 and 37 of Problems in American Democracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Problems in American Democracy by Times Williamson. Chapter 36 Honesty and Efficiency in Office. 451 Magnitude of the Problem. How can we ensure the honest and efficient administration of American government? Civic education and the perfection of nomination and election devices will do much toward securing this end. But there remains a troublesome question. This has to do with reorganizing our legislative and administrative machinery so that public officials may be allowed or encouraged to perform their duties in a responsible and effective manner. The problem is a vast one, the adequate treatment of which would require volumes. In this chapter, therefore, it will be necessary to confine the discussion to a few of the more pressing aspects of the problem. Of these are perhaps the more important. First, the defects in legislative procedure. Second, the reorganization of state administration. Third, budget reform. And fourth, the reform of municipal government. A. Defects in legislative procedure. 452. American legislatures are overworked. It has frequently been pointed out that in the United States, both state and national legislatures are overwhelmed with work. One reason for this is that the extension of government control over industrial corporations has rendered legislation more complex and greater in volume. The development of public interest in health, education, and related fields has, of recent years, markedly increased the amount of legislation. The custom which many legislators have of attempting to get as much special legislation for their respective districts as possible has likewise increased the number of laws upon the statute books. Lastly, it should be borne in mind that throughout our history we have tended to believe legislation a cure-all for the defects of American life. This attitude has led to an excessive number of laws on subjects which in European countries are ordinarily left to the discretion of administrative officials. The combined effect of these developments has been to confront our legislatures with so much business that honest and efficient legislation has been rendered exceedingly difficult. 453. The Committee System The chief defects of American legislation appear in connection with the committee system, which exists in both national and state legislatures. The committee system is the practice of dividing the legislative body into a large number of small groups or committees whose duty it is to consider various types of legislative business. The great merit of this device is that it expedites business. Indeed, the membership of our legislatures has become so large and the amount of legislative business has increased so rapidly that it is difficult to see how the committee system could be dispensed with. Without some such division of labor, chaos and endless delay would result. At the same time, the committee system has numerous faults. As Lord Bryce has pointed out, it destroys the unity of the legislature by breaking it up into a number of small groups, among which there is no appreciable degree of coordination. The committee system limits debate. Since most committee business is transacted in secret session, the public is deprived of light upon public affairs. So minutely does the committee system divide legislative labor that even the most important piece of legislation cannot secure the attention of the best men. 
There is a diffusion of responsibility when various committees work upon related problems without regard for the work being done by one another. Finally, the committee system throws power, unaccompanied by adequate responsibility, into the hands of the committee chairman. 454. Log Rolling Log rolling is the trading of votes among individual legislators. Many of the faults of our state and national legislatures are connected with this practice. Some legislators are so intent upon securing the passage of bills in which they are personally interested that they are willing to vote for a fellow legislator's pet bills, regardless of merit, provided that legislator will return the favor. In this way, special legislation often displaces bills which are drawn in a wider interest, taxation, education, and other vital matters being neglected so that members may pursue personal ends. There is as yet no limit to the number of bills which may be introduced by state or national legislators. As a result, there is a large number of unnecessary and hastily framed bills for which no one is definitely responsible. It is supposed to be the duty of all legislators to weed out bills which are poorly framed or which are designed to promote special interests. But in this case, everybody's business becomes nobody's business. Such machine-like formalities as repeated readings of a bill and a series of committee reports upon it are generally substituted for individual scrutiny of a measure. 455. Legislative Reform the reform of legislative procedure is attracting an increasing amount of attention among students of American politics. Many recent state constitutions define in detail the powers and procedure of the state legislature. A considerable number of states now have legislative reference bureaus which enable legislators to keep track of legislation in other states as well as to have ready access to important data bearing upon their own problems. There is a growing tendency for state legislatures to employ expert bill tractors to draw up laws on technical and highly complex subjects. The expert bill drafter and the legislative bureau help materially to reduce the amount of defective and unwise legislation on the statute books. Much remains to be done, however. Important public bills ought invariably to be given first consideration by legislators, instead of, as is still many times the case, being put off until the end of the session in order to allow time for log rolling. Filibustering and other time-wasting tactics should be curbed because they tend to obstruct legislation. Many students of government advocate the extension of a plan already adopted in Massachusetts and a few other states, whereby all bills are given a public hearing. It is also clear that some method ought to be devised, whereby the work of the various committees dealing with related subjects could be correlated and harmonized. Lastly, any measures which will reduce the amount of unnecessary and ill-advised legislation must prove of great value b the reorganization of state administration 456 defects in state administration originally the state administration consisted of the governor and a few elective officers notably a secretary of state a treasurer and an attorney general with the rapid development of the country, education, health, dependency, corporations, and similar matters have required more and more attention from state governments. 
to perform a host of new functions the state administration has expanded to include numerous commissioners boards departments some of them elected by the people and some of them appointed by the governor this development has been haphazard rather than orderly and planned as a result the administrative department is in most states a confused and tangled mass of boards and commissions departments and single offices often duplicating the work of one another and largely working without any appreciable degree of coordination in most states numerous administrative officers are elective rather than appointive the situation has two drawbacks in the first place elective officials are responsible to no one but the people at large and therefore these officials cannot be efficiently directed or supervised by the governor in the second place no definite person or persons can be held responsible for the conduct of this numerous body of elective administrative officials 457. The Reform of State Administration The reorganization and consolidation of state administrative offices is attracting an increasing amount of attention. In New Jersey, Massachusetts, Illinois, and several other states, administration has been notably simplified and systematized. The Illinois Administrative Code of 1917, for example, consolidated the work of more than a hundred administrative offices into nine main departments. Each department is in charge of a director appointed by the governor, and each department is responsible to the governor. Coordination of this type economizes time and energy and saves the state's money by reducing the number of salaried officials. The centralization of the entire administration under the governor not only allows efficient supervision, but permits the people to hold this official strictly accountable for the administration. The need of reform in state administration is recognized throughout the Union, but in most states, the reorganization of administrative offices is retarded in two ways. First, the movement is opposed by office holders who fear that their positions will be abolished by a consolidation of departments. Second, in many states, the consolidation of administrative offices is impossible without substantial amendments to the state constitution. C. Budget Reform 458. The Question of a Budget in contrast to the leading countries of Europe, our national government until very recently had no budget system. Some of the estimates were prepared by the administrative departments under the direction of the president, while other estimates were prepared by various committees in the House of Representatives. In Congress, there was little or no coordination between the various committees considering different appropriations, nor were these committees properly coordinated with the administrative departments which were responsible for the original estimates. After appropriations had been granted, Congress had no scrutiny over the actual expenditure of the money. Thus, the administrative departments might waste their appropriations and then secure the passage of deficiency bills to make up the shortage. At no time did the various departments and committees considering appropriations take into careful account the amount of government revenue. For this reason, it was purely an accident if appropriations kept within the limits set by available revenue. A similar situation formally prevailed in many of the states. The various administrative departments transmitted to the legislature an estimate of what each required for the coming year. 
These estimates, together with an unlimited number of appropriation bills introduced by individual members, were referred to various committees. Whether particular appropriations were granted depended not upon the amount of state revenue, but upon the political pressure brought to bear in favor of those measures. As in Congress, neither the executive nor the legislative branch of government, neither particular committees nor individual legislators, could be held wholly responsible for any appropriation measure. Excessive waste of public funds was the result. 459. Budget Reform the last two decades have witnessed a growing demand for a national budget. Under the direction of President Taft, a commission investigated the general question of responsibility in the handling of federal finances. The report of the committee favored a national budget, but the unfriendly attitude of Congress checked the movement. Interest in a national budget increased during the two terms of President Wilson, stimulated especially by the wave of post-war economy, which swept the country after the signing of the Armistice in November 1918. In the spring of 1921, a bill establishing a budget system for the national government passed both houses of Congress, and on June 10, 1921, the bill became law by the signature of President Harding. This system is expected markedly to improve federal finances. Practically unknown a few years ago, the budget movement among the states has spread so rapidly that at the present time almost all of the commonwealths have some sort of budget system. Three methods of preparing the budget are found among the several states. In some states, as in New York, budget making is in the hands of the legislature. In other states, as in Wisconsin, both legislature and executive participate in budget making. In still other states, as in Illinois, the executive alone is responsible for the preparation of the budget. Many authorities claim that the last named type of a budget preparation is preferable, but in many states it is objected to as giving too much power to the executive. D. The Reform of Municipal Government 460. Municipal Reform. Changes in the Mayor-Council Plan. Until the opening of the 20th century, practically every American city was governed under what is known as the Mayor-Council Plan. This plan provides for a council to make the laws and a mayor to act as executive. Formerly, the council of the larger cities was very often composed of two chambers a board of aldermen, and a common council. But of late years, the single-chambered council has become more and more common. The mayor-council plan still prevails in most American cities, particularly in the large municipalities. But everywhere, the growing demand for honesty and efficiency in government is leading to the reform of this system. In order to reduce the length of the ballot, the appointive power of the mayor is being increased. In the interests of economy and responsibility, the administrative offices are in many cities being consolidated, coordinated, and centralized under the mayor. To guard against the abuse of financial power, there is in many commonwealths a tendency for state constitutions and statutes to limit the debt incurring and franchise granting powers of city councils. 461. Municipal Reform, the Commission Plan. In September 1900, a tidal wave seriously demoralized the mayor-council form of government in Galveston, Texas. To meet the emergency, the state legislature authorized the establishment of a new type of government known as the Commission Plan. 
Instead of selecting a mayor and councilman, the voters of Galveston now choose a commission of five officials. All of these commissioners are equal in power, except that one presides as mayor president. The commission form of government spread rapidly, chiefly among the smaller cities, until in 1921 there were more than 300 municipalities governed under this plan. In every case, the commission has both legislative and executive powers. Collectively, the commissioners act as a legislative body for the city. Individually, they head the various administrative departments. A number of important advantages are claimed for the commission form of city government. Responsibility is no longer divided among mayor and councilmen, but can definitely be placed upon the small group of commissioners. It is believed by many that commission government allows a greater harmony of action than is possible under the mayor-council plan. Finally, it is declared, a group of five or seven commissioners can administer city government with more efficiency than can a mayor and a numerous council. The opponents of commission government maintain, on the other hand, that the plan is undemocratic and oligarchical because it centralizes great power in the hands of a small group. The plan is said to increase the danger of corruption, since appropriating and spending powers are placed in the same hands. The opponents of this form of government also maintain that it renders easier the corruption of the city administration, since party bosses may easily gain control of a few commissioners. A final, and perhaps the most serious objection, is that commission government does not go to the logical conclusion in concentrating responsibility. There is no head to the administration and no way of preventing the diffusion of responsibility among the commissioners. Jealousy among the commissioners has often led to friction and to working at cross-purposes. Footnote. Of recent years, a number of cities have abandoned commission government for either the mayor-council or the city manager plan. 462. Municipal Reform. The City Manager Plan. A recent modification of commission government is the city manager plan. This provides for a small elective commission which does not itself administer the government of the city, but which chooses instead an experienced executive or city manager. The city manager is supposed to be a non-partisan, except whose duty it is to administer the city in accordance with business principles. As the agent of the commission choosing him, the city manager enforces all ordinances, prepares annual estimates, and appoints all other city officials and employees. He also accepts full responsibility for the administration of the city's affairs. The first city to apply to the city manager plan was Dayton, Ohio, which began the experiment on January 1, 1914. Since that date, the plan, or some variation of it, has been established in about a hundred cities. The city manager plan is an improvement over the commission plan in that it allows a greater concentration of responsibility. Another advantage over commission government is that the city manager plan ensures a high grade of professional skill at the apex of the city's administration. The plan appears to work well in the smaller cities, provided a high-grade manager can be found, and provided also that his position can be safeguarded against corrupting political influences. End of chapter 36. Chapter 37. The Extension of Popular Control. 463. Basis of Popular Control. 
The fact that our government is a representative democracy entitles the voters to choose, direct, and control the public officials who act for the people at large. We have discussed a few of the methods whereby the nomination and election machinery might be improved. We must now go a step further and examine the means by which officeholders may be controlled. Supposedly, officials are chosen because the people believe them able and willing to discharge public duties with honesty and efficiency. But after officials have taken office, it may develop that they have secured their positions by unfair means, or that they are dishonest, or that they are inefficient or otherwise unsatisfactory. Wherever it develops that officeholders no longer meet with the approval of the people, truly representative government is impossible unless some method of effective popular control is found. A. Indirect methods of control. 464. Refusal to re-elect. If the voters are dissatisfied with the conduct of their representatives, they may express their disapproval by refusing to re-elect those representatives. This affects a measure of control, even though it is negative and not immediate. 465. Removal by the appointive authority. If satisfaction is not rendered by subordinate administrative officials who have secured office through appointment, such officials may be removed from office by the authority appointing them. The power of the president, governor, or mayor to appoint generally carries with it the power to remove from office. Such removal may be on the initiative of the appointing authority, or it may be in response to a popular demand. From the standpoint of the voters at large, however, this method of removal is indirect and often ineffective. 466. Impeachment. Unsatisfactory officials are sometimes removed by the impeachment process. In the various states, either a part or the whole of the legislature may sit as a court of impeachment for the trial of certain important officials accused of serious crime. In the national government, the House of Representatives may initiate impeachment proceedings against the President, Vice President, and all other civil officers of the United States. In such cases, the Senate acts as a court of trial. Yet, as a method of popular control, impeachment is unsatisfactory. It is indirect, since a part or the whole of the legislature acts for the people. It is slow and cumbersome. It does not extend over the entire list of public officials, nor over the entire range of offenses. 467. Control through the amending process. The powers and duties of public officials may be partially controlled through the formal amending process. In all states except New Hampshire, the Constitution may be amended through legislative action, subsequently ratified by popular vote. About two-thirds of the states also provide for amendment by a constitutional convention composed of delegates elected by the voters. In a number of states, as we shall see a little later, Constitutional amendment may also be secured by means of the initiative and referendum. The federal constitution may be formally amended in four different ways. The two most important methods are, first, by a two-thirds vote in each House of Congress, and second, by a convention called by Congress upon application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the states. In either case, the amendment must be ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the states. The formal amending process is an important part of our governmental machinery, but as a method of popular control, it is open to a number of criticisms. 
It is slow, it is indirect, for the people must rely chiefly upon their legislatures. Constitutional amendment cannot remedy all of the abuses of office. Furthermore, it is too drastic and far-reaching a remedy for many of the minor abuses of office. 4. Direct Methods of Control 468. The Initiative In more than a third of the states, popular discontent with the state legislature, together with the growing self-confidence of the voters, has led to the adoption of the initiative. The initiative is a device whereby any person or group of persons may draft a statute and, on securing the signatures of a certain percentage of the voters, compel the state officials to submit the measure to popular vote. If, at this voting, the measure secures the required popular approval, it becomes law. When the measure is submitted to the voters directly after the fulfillment of the petition requirements, the device is known as the direct initiative. When, after passing the petition stage, the measure goes to the legislature and does not come before the people at the polls unless the legislature fails to accept it, the device is known as the indirect initiative. In a dozen states, chiefly in the West, the initiative is also used to propose amendments to the state constitution. 469. The Referendum Early in our national history, it became an established principle that proposed constitutions or constitutional amendments should be referred to the voters for ratification. Of recent years, about a third of the states, chiefly in the West, have extended the referendum device to cover ordinary legislation. This type of referendum may be defined as a plan whereby a small percentage of the voters may demand that practically any statute passed by the legislature must be submitted to the voters and approved by a specified majority before going into effect. Footnote. A few types of laws are not subject to the referendum. End of footnote. The referendum is variously applied. In the compulsory referendum, which is the most common form, a measure must be submitted to the people whenever a designated number of voters petition that this step be taken. The optional referendum allows the state legislature to decide whether or not an enacted measure should be submitted to the people. The statutory referendum applies only to proposed statutes, while the constitutional referendum is limited to proposed amendments to the state constitution. 470. Direct Legislation The initiative and referendum are found together in more than a dozen states. The two devices are supplementary. The initiative is a positive instrument which may be used to set the wheels of direct legislation in motion. The referendum is a negative measure which gives the people a potential veto on laws passed by the legislature. The initiative and the referendum are known collectively as direct legislation, that is, legislation directly by the people, as opposed to legislation enacted entirely through the legislature. 471. Advantages Claimed for Direct Legislation Important advantages are claimed for direct legislation. It is declared that the initiative and referendum keep lawmaking from being dominated by special interests. Because it constitutes a check upon constitutional conventions and state legislatures, direct legislation is said to make government more truly responsive to public opinion. It is claimed that direct legislation does not supplant 
but rather supplements, improves, and renders more democratic the formal legislative machinery. In several states, and especially in Oregon, it is claimed that the device stimulates political interest on the part of the voters. In Oregon, the authorities print a pamphlet containing a statement of proposed laws and summarizing the arguments of both advocates and opponents of each measure. Some weeks before the measure is to be decided at the polls, this pamphlet is sent at public expense to every registered voter in the state. 472. Objectives urged against direct legislation. Critics of the initiative and the referendum maintain that direct legislation has many serious defects. It is declared that by breaking down and weakening the state legislature, this type of legislation threatens the integrity of the framework of government established by the state constitution. It is pointed out that direct legislation shifts lawmaking from a definite group, the state legislature, to a large and indefinite group of persons, the voters as a class upon whom responsibility cannot be fixed. By robbing the legislature of power and responsibility, the initiative and referendum are said to degrade rather than to improve that body. The best class of men is not attracted to a legislature which has been shorn of dignity and influence. And if the people rely upon the initiative and referendum, the voters deem it less necessary to choose honest, capable legislatures. It is also maintained that the initiative and referendum do not promote independence of political thought, since only a mechanical yes or no is demanded of the voters. In all states where direct legislation is applied, it is said so few persons actually vote that legislation is really determined by a small minority of the voters. Again, the ease with which the initiative and referendum may be set in motion allows so many measures to be brought before the people that they cannot vote upon them intelligently. It is also said that the direct legislation is primarily the instrument of the propagandist because in many cases cranks and professional agitators monopolize the privilege of circulating petitions. A serious defect of direct legislation is that the drafting of many laws requires detailed and technical information, which the average voter is in no position to secure. In several states, notably in Maine, the recognition of this difficulty has led to the adoption of a modified initiative. According to this plan, the state legislature may examine any measure proposed by the voters, enact an alternative measure of its own, and submit both to popular approval. The voters decide between the two. The difficulty with this plan is that it is not only expensive, but that by doubling the number of measures to be weighed and studied, it imposes an added burden upon the voter at the polls. 473. The Recall the recall is a device whereby certain elective officials who have not given satisfaction in office may be required to stand for re-election before the end of their terms. The recall is set in motion when a petition has been duly signed by a specified percentage of the voters, usually at least 25%. The recall cannot be employed until the official in question has been in office a specified period so that he shall have had an opportunity to give satisfaction before being subject to recall. 
Accused officials may forestall the recall by resigning when a petition is launched against them. Otherwise, they must stand for re-election. The ballot which goes to the people contains, in brief, the objections to the official, and, in some states, also the reply of the accused officeholder. If defeated at the polls, the accused official must retire from office. If vindicated, he continues in office during the remainder of his term. The principle of the recall was recognized in American state government before the end of the 18th century, but in its present application it is much younger. In its modern form, the recall was first used in 1903, when the city of Los Angeles applied it to elective municipal officials. Five years later, Oregon adopted it for all state officers, and since 1908, it has spread to a number of other states, most of them in the western part of the country. The recall has been used chiefly against city officials, though in several states it may be applied to a majority of both local and state officials. In Oregon, California, Arizona, Colorado, and Nevada, the recall may also be used against judges. 474. Arguments for the Recall Those favoring the recall maintain that it is the natural and legitimate expression of the right to remove unsatisfactory officials. It is pointed out that the recall permits longer terms for elective officials, for if the voters know that they can use the recall to remove officials who prove unsatisfactory, they will feel safe in electing those officials for relatively long terms. By reducing the number of elections, the device lightens the burdens of the voter. The recall is said to be a wholesome reminder of pre-election promises. It is also maintained that since recall is a threat, it encourages office holders to be honest and efficient. 475. Objections urged against the recall. In answer to the above arguments, the opponents of the recall claim that the device encourages officials to curry popular favor, regardless of public duty. It may also place officials at the mercy of popular passion and caprice. When it is applied to judges, the recall threatens the integrity and independence of a branch of government which ought to be removed from popular clamor and prejudice. This last is a serious objection, for it may happen that judges subject to the recall will hesitate to hand down decisions that may prove unpopular, however just those decisions may be. For this reason, the extension of the recall to judges is being strongly resisted. Even the most ardent advocates of the device are beginning to admit that the recall is more applicable to administrative officials than to judges. 476 status of the recall. A satisfactory decision upon the merits of the recall is difficult because it is so recent a development and still so little used that few data are available. The statewide recall has been in existence for a number of years, yet few state officials have been removed by it. Los Angeles used the recall to unseat the mayor in 1904 and in 1909 and in 1911, the device was used against the mayor of Seattle. But the recall is primarily a threat and is rarely used. In view of this fact, the arguments for and against the device rest upon theory rather than upon actual experience. The recall has great possibilities for good if wisely administered, but it may become an evil influence if carelessly or revengefully used. 477. 
Significance of Popular Control The development of the initiative, the referendum, and the recall indicates a growing impatience with the abuses of party power, the evils of the long ballot, and the corruption and inefficiency of many legislative bodies. It is significant that direct popular control has accompanied the widespread movement to reform municipal government and that it is playing an increasingly important part in the movement to reform state administration. Up to the present time, the initiative, the referendum, and the recall have been confined chiefly to the West, where political problems are less acute than in the East, and where, too, the tendency toward direct participation in government has always been marked. Nevertheless, there is some indication that the future will see an extension of direct popular control, not only in the West, but also in other parts of the country. Whether or not this extension is desirable, we cannot now say, but certainly it is an interesting and important development, and one demanding careful study and mature deliberation on the part of those who seek to make American government highly effective. End of chapter 37